Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Hello, Phil and Phil. This is Mama Schaff. I just finished a great walk on a sunny December day and listened to Seeing Hands. That was awesome. Of course, you know, I listen to um, your podcast all the time. I'm on Spotify in little old St. Johnsville, New York, actually rural Fort Plain, New York. Have a wonderful day and keep up the great work. Love you, my Phil's. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The plane jarred violently as it climbed into the gray February night sky, but the 95 passengers on board were not dismayed. After being grounded an additional three hours for severe weather, some were already asleep, and all were excited to be leaving snowy and icy New York on their way to beautiful sunny Miami, Florida on February 1st, 1957. Northeast Airlines Flight 823 had taxied off the runway at LaGuardia Airport, less than a minute earlier and was beginning its ascent with Captain Elvin Marsh at the controls and co-pilot Basil Dixwell by his side. The stewardesses had not yet had the chance to offer beverages from the drink cart, and the ice and wind was pelting the southbound flight, when Dixwell suddenly screamed, Al, ground coming up. But it was too late. Flight 823 wavered like a bird with a crippled wing, before crashing violently into a patch of small trees. Less than 60 seconds after taking off, it lay with both wings ripped off and on fire on a small plot of land just south of the airport. That parcel of land was Rikers Island, home to one of the most notorious prisons in the country. Immediately, panicked passengers began scrambling through gaping holes in the fuselage as flames continued to engulf the cabin. Panic and chaos ensued. One man dragged his screaming wife to safety, Burning flyers ran from the wreckage and rolled in the snow. The jet hissed and screamed as a second explosion rocked the twisted metal frame and claimed some 20 lives with it. The survivors were desperate for help, and those that could ran for help. It had been less than two minutes since the plane had crashed. Passenger Kenneth Cronin, a 29-year-old textile salesman at the time of the crash, was on his way to Miami with his wife and two sons to visit family. They were not supposed to even be on the doomed flight. The family had missed their morning flight when, the, when their cab driver got lost on the way to LaGuardia, and as a result, they managed to purchase tickets on the later flight 823. In hindsight, Cronin recalled in a later interview, quote, that plane should have never taken off. It took off and rose to maybe 2,000 feet, 
when it went zooming down headfirst toward the prison. Cronin remembered the devastation and the panic. We were all burning. It was so hot and the plane was on fire, he said. I threw my son Mark outside because there were flames on him and he landed on a snowbank. Mark was only six weeks, six weeks old at the time. In the confusion and the utter bedlam, Cronin knew Mark was out of the plane, but lost any idea of where he was exactly. His other son, two-year-old Richard, was with their mother. I only knew what to do in the moment, and that was getting him out of the plane, Cronin said. That was the last time I saw him until two days later. That's when something truly remarkable occurred. Out of the darkness of the cold winter night came the answer to the prayers of those victims clinging to life on the ground. Inmates from Rikers Prison. Deputy Warden James Harrison was on duty at Rikers the night Flight 823 crashed onto the island. Nighttime duty at the prison had the tendency to lull its guards into complacency with its monotony and boredom. Harrison was jolted by the explosion and saw what he described as the brightest light he'd ever seen. Suddenly, Harrison was faced with a crucial decision and mere seconds to make it. There were only 28 officers on duty that night, but there were 69 inmates available for snow removal. It was one of the most important decisions Harrison would make in his life. Should he send the prisoners out into the storm to try and rescue passengers caught in the carnage and risk their escape, or worse, their own death? Or should the small band of guards go out and do the best that they could with their limited numbers? Get the gangs who are ready for snow clearing, Harrison ordered to the desk officer. There are no officers to send out with them, the underlying responded. Just send them out, Harrison called before sprinting outside toward the burning wreckage to assist in the rescue. Meanwhile, inside what was left of the plane, a hellish inferno raged. Passengers were plunged into the darkness of the night, the freezing cold temperatures, and the ferocious flames and thick black smoke that consumed the cabin. The emergency exits had been jammed, the rear of the plane completely ablaze. Passengers were trying desperately to climb through windows or break through the shell of the plane with an axe. Stewardesses cried out instructions to the remaining passengers, urging them toward the few available exits, but many of the flyers froze in their seats, paralyzed with fear and unable to will themselves to move. Like horses in a burning barn, some passengers preferred the familiarity of their seats to the unknown around them. The passengers trampled over one another to escape. The old adage, women and children first, was not an option. Amid the mayhem, order began to be established. The dead were being dragged into a line in the snow, some burnt so badly that even gender could not be determined. The inmates from Rikers Island began pairing up individually with survivors and remained with them to administer aid and to calm their nerves. All of the surviving passengers were escorted to the jail, where inmates in the infirmary willingly gave up their beds. They began assigning tasks like handing out water to victims or applying Vaseline, bandages, and other first aid. In a reception room turned triage center, one inmate offered a cigarette to a passenger dealing with minor injuries. The flyer responded that he only smoked cigars. So the inmate went to his cell and returned with a cigar of his cellmate. Another scared woman looked helplessly at an inmate and asked, how do I look? You look fine, just fine, he replied gently. The line between inmate and official rescuer quickly became blurred. Young men confined to cells for crimes and locked away from the rest of society doted carefully on the fragile passengers with exceptional compassion. Rumors began to circulate through the penitentiary that inmates released to assist 
were escaping, and Deputy Harrison became fearful for his career. City Department and Correction Commissioner Ann Cross assured Harrison that his decision had been the correct one and that she would support him regardless of what happened. By 1 a.m., all the surviving plane passengers had been transported to city hospitals, and every inmate was back in his cell. Not one had tried to escape. Six-week-old Mark Cronin remained covered in snow, barely visible to rescuers, while his family was whisked away from the scene. Still in shock, his parents feared the worst. They tried to console themselves with the idea that at least two-year-old Richard had survived. But Mark was alive and had been discovered and saved by an inmate when he literally stepped on him in the snow. The inmate brought Mark back to the prison. Mark Cronin still never found out the name of the inmate who found him and ultimately saved his life. Cronin, who nearly lost three fingers on his right hand as a result of the crash, grew up to be a tennis player who actually played the likes of tennis legends like John McEnroe. He settled into a productive life on Long Island, where he and his wife raised two daughters. I can't express how grateful I am, Mark said of the guardian angel inmate who plucked him from the snow that fateful night. He gave me a beautiful life, a beautiful life. In the ensuing days, nearly 60 inmates had their sentences reduced or commuted because of their heroic efforts that night. This has been a Missing Chapter Short, your quick fix for one of history's forgotten stories in a busy world. Listen to more shorts as well as full-length episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast providers.